Well, everybody, uh, my name is Ben. A special welcome to everybody across all of Westwood campuses online and in person. It is an honor to be here today to get to unpack the word and to dive into what God is telling us. So we are continuing a series called Rhythm, Living in Step with God, where we've been going through this thing in the scripture called the Shema. And if you've been here the last couple weeks, that's no surprise to you. Shema is the word literally translated to hear or listen in English. And it's this section of scripture uh, that the Hebrews would read or actually recite from memory every day, at least twice a day, when they woke up in the morning and when they went to bed at night. So uh, for us, uh, think about your smartphone. You know, the first thing you pick up in the morning, the last thing you sit down. So uh, if you get one of these cards, which I think you can pick up at the info desk that has the Shema on it, you might want to consider putting this where you put your smartphone uh, so that as you pick that up, it's also a reminder to start folding this into the rhythm of your life. And, and that's really the goal of this series is not just to memorize these words, uh, but to fold into our lives what these words mean, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. And so let's read the Shema together. And for those of you who have it memorized, you can say it from memory. Uh, let's read it together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Yeah, thank you. And so for the last couple weeks, Joel has been unpacking this. We're doing a word study on this section of scripture. So he talked about Shema, what it is to listen, which is also the word of the year for us as a church. He also talked about the word Adonai. What does it mean for Jesus to be our Lord? So that's that word. And today I'm going to unpack the word in the Shema for love. Uh, and love is a hard one to unpack because I can tell you what love looks like. I can show you, I can give illustration, but I guarantee you my words today will be inadequate because truth be told, love has to be experienced to be truly known. Truth has to be experienced to be truly known. Uh, it's kind of like, you know how uh, married people always like to tell single people, single people are like, well, how do you know it's the one? And they're like, you, you know, you just know. When it's the right one, you just know. Single people, don't you hate that? <laughs> right, I know I did. Until it happened to me. And you just know. Like, uh, there was this one fateful day where uh, my wife, not my wife, my wife now, but this girl, Katie Ingwerson, and I were hanging out on a bluff overlooking Lake Michigan. We were just friends. We've been friends for years. And she says these words. She goes, you know, my mom always said we should date. And by the way, she wasn't trying to, like, make anything happen. She was just saying, my mom says this. Isn't that silly? And because who would want to date me, right? And then uh, I just said, well, why don't we? And, and she's like, well, okay. And we kind of left and we, we entered this kind of awkward, like, I think we define the relationship. What's happening here? I'm not sure, but I'm just telling you something was different for me. And I dropped her off at her house, and this is in Wisconsin, out on a country road. I drop her off, and I'm driving away. When I'm down the road far enough, I don't think that I'll be heard. I, I got the window down. I just stuck my arm out, and I was like, yes! Like, like, I just knew. Like, there was something there. And I, I know for those of you who are single, are like, yeah, sure, when's my day coming? I don't know. But when you know, you know because love experienced is different than just love described. And today what we're talking about is love with God as the center of our love. And I'm, man, just hear me clearly. 
I desire deeply for you in your relationship with God, in your heart of hearts, to have that yes experience. And that's not going to come because I described what love looks like. It's going to come from you having a real experience with the living God. And so that's ultimately my prayer today. I'm going to describe it. I'm going to do my best to talk about it. But my prayer is that every one of us would have a real experience with the living God that stirs our hearts to the point. I know it's cold outside, but just maybe on the way driving out of church, there'll be some windows rolling down going, yes, and then quickly roll it back up because it's cold. I just pray that you would know that. So as we look at the word love, you got to understand right off the bat, English, the word for love is just so woefully inadequate. It just, it's lacking so much because I could say, I love my wife and I love tacos, right? Now, now listen, I am passionate about a good taco. Anybody else with me? Like, it's one of those foods that when it comes out, I just, I can't stop. Until it's gone, I just, okay, there's another one. I guess I'm eating that one too. I don't know about you. But I'll tell you this, to try and put my love for tacos anywhere near even the same scale as my love for my wife, not even close. Not even close. Like, the, the word love, it just, it can't, we use it in all these ways, small and big. In Hebrew, they have a word for love for just about everything. And so uh, let's take a look at a few of those. So uh, there's the word David, uh, which means beloved. So if there's a David in your life, you can just tell him, you're beloved, you're beloved. There's the word yadad, which is a friendship love. There's the word agab, which is a sexual love. There's the word machamal, not a COVID-friendly word, which is love out of pity. There's the word ma'ah, and I just love this one. Hear this. The love a mother feels for her unborn child while still in the room, in the womb. I mean, Hebrew has a word for love for just about everything. Uh, check, check these ones out. I have a couple more for you. Bildad, love that you haven't quite figured out yet. I mean, can't you just picture like a father talking to his son's girlfriend and is like, what exactly, uh, what's going on here? How do you feel about my daughter? About, about Bildad? Right? And then there's Hava, a love out of obligation. That's a powerful word, a love out of obligation. And I just want to uh, pause on that one for a second, park there. Because I, I fear a lot of us have learned to love God through the things that we do in church and in our spiritual lives. And we're obligated to do those things. But I wonder if he has your heart. Now, in family systems, um, and, and I don't know what one you came from, or there's wide variety in here, I'm sure. But in a healthy family system, there is both nurture and structure. And every, no family system is perfect, so please hear me not saying that this example here gives a perfect example. But if you're in a household that's all nurture and no structure, kids will hear things like, hey, just do whatever you want. Oh, we don't care. We love you. You just do whatever you want. Here, here you go. And in that situation, children actually feel unsafe and therefore unloved. In a family situation where it's all structure and no nurture, then what you end up having are extremely obedient children who act really good, but their hearts are a million miles away from their parents. Now, you could apply that same thing to our relationship with God. 
nurture structure? Do we know the structure of what it is to follow God, know Jesus as Lord, or do we really also know him in the nurture, affectionate way? And the word for love that we find in the Shema, ahava, it means both that structure and nurture. It is affectionate obligation. Now, anybody in here a fan of the movie The Princess Bride? Yeah, a couple of you? All right, so in that movie, and this is the beginning, so if you just want to watch the beginning, I do love this movie, I always have, and I'm not going to ruin it for you, but if anybody wants a peanut, I will, okay, you guys are not really into that. Yeah, way too meta on that, sorry about that. So, Princess Bride. At the beginning of Princess Bride, we've got Buttercup, and Buttercup has a servant, Wesley, and everything Buttercup asks Wesley to do, everything, he He just does it, he does it, he does it, and he does it with this phrase, as you, yeah, we do have a couple fans in here, but maybe you forgot, yep, as you wish, he says. And it comes to this point where Buttercup realizes that every time Wesley is serving her and saying, as you wish, what he's actually saying is, I love you, I love you, I love you. He's serving her, he's obedient, but he's doing it out of affectionate obedience, Now, I I just want to pause here. I'm guessing most of us have somebody in our life that we would say, oh, they're they're always doing the little things. Like, you know what I'm saying? The person who always does those little things. And have you ever stopped to think, man, that's just a thousand ways that they're saying I love you. Or to think of the people in your life and think, man, I actually have a thousand ways I could tell them I love them. Affectionate obedience is a really powerful way to communicate love. It's a heart of emotion that moves in action. And the root of the word is, I will give. It's self-sacrificing. It's releasing of self. And is that not the truest indicator of love? What am I willing to give or sacrifice? I mean, and now let's look at God's love for us. For God so, you know, I'm glad you know that better than the movie, by the way. Good job. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus. The gospel is an ahava, affectionate obedience, Jesus going to the cross, rising from the dead, all of that willing to sacrifice out of love for you and me. And that's powerful. And we've all heard a lot of messages about what it is, how much, and what it is that God loves us. Today, I wanna draw a picture of what it looks like for us to love God. And so three major moves as we go through this. The first one is as we talk about what does it mean to ahava, love God. And the first one is this. To love God is to adore God. Don't you love that word adore? Like think about the last time you saw, maybe you saw a little baby. You're like, oh, I just adore a little puppy. Oh, just like it has this like stirring up, this joyfulness to it, this, this, there's, there's something in me that even gets giddy about it, to adore. Uh, in the book of Revelation, there's these letters written to different churches and many of them chastising. And one of the churches being chastised is, is told, you have left your first love. It's saying you've left God as your first love. And so our adoration, the center of that, our first love should be God Almighty, should be him at the center. So uh, I want to help you think about, help us uh, think about and process this with this. Uh, Do you have a dog's perspective or a cat's perspective? (laughs) So maybe some of you already know the answer based on your response so far, but, but hear this. How many of you in here would say that you are dog people? Yeah, yeah, quite a few. It's often the majority, yeah. 
Okay, so how many of you would say that you're a cat person? All right, if you have more than one, you are by definition a cat person. So, yeah, yep, a couple more hands just went up. That's right. Now, now check this out. When uh, you're leaving the house and you're, you're, how does your dog typically react when you're leaving the house? Yeah, they're like at the door. Like, don't leave me. There's so many things we're going to do today. I, had, I was going to drool on you for at least an hour. Like, why are you leaving me? Right? Now, when, you're, when you leave the house, how does your cat respond? Meh. <laughs> eh. Right? Pretty much none. Now, when you come home, and I know you're probably thinking, like, there are exceptions to all these, but the typical dog, when you come home, how does the typical dog respond? Yeah, they're at the door. I love you, I love you, I love you, I missed you, I missed you, I missed you. Take me outside. Right? When you come home, how does your typical cat respond? Meh. I mean, if you can even find them, right? Some of you are like, no, you don't know my cat. Fluffy. She comes running up to me the second I walk in the door. She's rubbing on my leg. Like, listen, do you know what's happening? First of all, she's saying, there's that human that brings me food. And then she's rubbing up against you to put her scent on you so that everyone else knows this human belongs to me, right? Because at the center of a cat's world is themselves and you exist to serve them, truth. And at the center of a dog's world is you and they love to be with you and serve you, affectionate obedience. So when we think about our relationship or your relationship with God, how many of us in here struggle with thinking we're at the center of the universe and God is in our orbit and exists to serve me? I mean, how many times have you run into somebody who's upset at God because things didn't work out the way they think he should have done it? I mean, what are you really saying? Who's at the center of existence in this situation? Versus God love you, I love you, I love you, I serve you, I serve you. You're at the center. See, there is a hierarchy to love. There is, and, there, it, and it's the, the way it should be. And when that hierarchy gets out of place, that's where a lot of the brokenness in our world happens. That's where relationships hurt in so many ways. I have a friend who years ago, he was struggling in his marriage, and he's a musician, and the music kind of career was starting to take off and he was getting gigs and his, his wife said, I feel like he loves his music more than he loves me. And so he and I were talking and he brought that up and I asked him, I said, well, do you? Here's his response. He said, well, can't I love them both the same? In case you're curious, the answer is no. <laughs> you cannot. Like wife, then music, career, whatever. Like, you can't. And when it comes to God, some of us, well, can't I just love, love him the same? No. But, but here's the thing. When God is in the right place, first priority love, and everything else follows after it in priority, that is actually the most delightful place to be. Uh, this is what Matthew 6 says. But seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. When we delight in the Lord first, Everything else falls into its place after that. Uh, this, is, this is kind of a low-level example, but it's just something from my own life that might help. Uh, I'm somebody who loves my lists. Lists, like writing out to-do lists. 
And I don't know, I don't know about any of the rest of you, I see a couple elbows already flying in the room, like, I think you might do that too. Um, and, and I have this thing, like, I'll, on Monday morning, I go through my list, I set the things for the week, I set the things for the day, and sometimes I get so stressed out. Like, my wife will be like, why are you so stressed out? And I'm like, I don't know. No one even else knows this is on my list, but I'm not getting it done. Is that just me? And so one day, and, and thinking about my first love, I made my list my first priority. I've got to do this. I've got to get this done. I've got to figure out these things. And one day it hit me, am I making my list more important than my Lord? And so I started praying, Lord, here's my list, but I need your help. Lord, what do you want me to be doing today? What do you want to be my priority? And maybe it's nothing on that list. What do you want me to accomplish, if anything? And I'll tell you, I still got things done, but I got things done with a lot more joy and a lot more peace and things that got pushed off wasn't a stress. It was like, okay, Lord, I follow you. Your first priority, everything else follows second. This also plays out in another way in our lives. Uh, there's a, a woman whose testimony uh, I was listening to once and she had lived a life very far from God uh, with a number of, number of patterns in her life that did not honor God or his word. And she was asked once, well, what really made the change? Why did you move from that lifestyle to this completely different way of being? And her answer was, well, I did love that lifestyle. I did. I loved the things I was doing. I loved the, what I know to be sin I was involved in. But then she said this, as I began to know God, I loved him more. And she said, when my love for God exceeded my love for my sin, my sin had to go. And he became first priority in my life. It changed everything. So I ask you, what's your perspective? Who do you adore? And who is at the center of your affection? To love God is to adore God. Secondly, to love God is to trust him. To trust him, to release everything to him. Uh, there's a test that some Pharisees did of Jesus. In fact, we're going to read this here, Mark chapter 12. Later, some, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher or rabbi, we know that you are a man of integrity. We're, they're just kind of buttering him up here. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, here's the trap question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Because if they say, yes, you should pay the tax to Caesar, all the Hebrew people are going to be upset because these are the people oppressing them. And if he says, no, you shouldn't pay the tax to Caesar, well, then they'll go report him to Rome and Rome will have some words with him. And then Jesus, I mean, this is just amazing. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. And he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. This is a coin. Said so they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this uh, and whose inscription? And they said, Caesar's. So Jesus said to them, we'll give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were amazed at his teaching. And maybe because we aren't first century Hebrews, you didn't catch what's so amazing about this. But Jesus basically said, hey, that coin, and you know, it's coins today, they still have images of people on them. That coin has a, the image of Caesar, the ruler of the time. Yeah, give that little coin to Caesar. But every Hebrew would know whose, whose image is humanity made in. 
God's. So he's basically saying, yeah, go ahead and give Caesar what's Caesar's, but God's image is on you. You give God everything that you are. Release all. Like to trust God is to trust him completely. To see all that you are, all that you have is his, is servant to him. Him first. And, and I don't know if you realize this or not, but when we tithe, that's actually what we're saying. We're not saying when we tithe, like this section of my, my wealth that I give to you, Lord, is yours and the rest is mine. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is everything I have is yours. And this section that is given in this way is to remind me that everything I have is yours. Doesn't it change how you swipe your credit card when you think, okay, as I'm buying this thing, is it for my glory or God's? What's my first priority here? Everything we have is his. And by the way, I just love being a part of this church here and seeing, as I've been around here for about a year, the way this generosity is played out in this community. The church as a whole is an example of this, living a generous-hearted life. People in this church are incredible, living a generous hearted life and I think that comes from having priority of love there's a story of um, an army going out to battle and their leader became a follower of God so everybody needed to be baptized that's kind of how it worked the leader is so everybody had to so they are going to get baptized and this is a folklore so we don't know if this actually happened but the story goes that everybody is getting baptized and completely submersed in the water, except they're all holding out a hand. Right hand for some, left hand for others. And somebody's like, well, why, why are they getting baptized but holding the hand out of the water? And the answer given is, well, because they're going to war. So they're giving God every part of them except for their war hand that they're going to have to kill people with that sword. So they're keeping their sword hand out of the water. And I just wonder, allegorically applying that, how many of us are like, God, take everything. It's all yours, except I'm going to hold this one thing out. Whatever it might be, my career, my wallet, a certain relationship, a certain thing that, that I want, a certain, a certain habit I don't want to let go. Like, you could have everything, but not this. And I'm, I'm here to encourage you today that there's actually no better place to be than completely dependent and trusting on God because he is worthy I know someone who years ago uh, was struggling with cancer and she said, cancer has systematically taken everything away from me. She said it, it took uh, away my career, took away my health and my, able, my ability to move. It took away my proximity to people and relationships. It, it, it took away my future. She said it systematically took everything away from me and she goes, all I have left is Jesus. And then she said this, and Jesus is enough. You see, we can have everything but Jesus and we actually have nothing. We can have Jesus but nothing else. We actually have everything. He is first priority. He's the one. And I know that might be a hard concept. Like, how do I trust God with everything? Well, part of it is knowing who God is and part of it is just is just leaning into him like to not trust him the definition of that is worry now I, I, I don't know if this happens to anybody else but not too long ago there was a situation in my life and it caused a lot of anxiety in my heart like I found myself getting really worked up about it when I is this just me anybody else okay m me and two other people struggle with anxiety all right and so we 
we, we'll just talk the three of us here. When I was experiencing this overwhelming anxiety, uh, my wife said something to me that just absolutely pierced my heart. She said, she said, worry, and uh, you can put that up, is an acceptable sin to many, but ultimately what worry is, is telling God that we don't trust him. Think, hear that again. Ultimately what worry is, is telling God that we don't trust him. That just pierced my heart. And then I was like, okay, well, what do I do with that? Well, good news. The Bible tells us what to do with worry. Philippians 4 says this, don't do it. Amen. Don't worry about anything. Like uh, commands like this in the Bible, I mean, I don't know why these aren't the ones that we lift up. I mean, we're, we're always talking about do not murder and do not covet. I mean, all those are good, but why aren't we saying, hey, do not worry? Like, it's like God telling us, eat ice cream every day. And we're like, yeah, I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> like, don't worry about anything. And I know just saying that, like, Okay, well, what do I do with that? But listen, Philippians 4 literally tells us what to do with that. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Do you know that is the most underlined passage in the Bible every single year? In the, in the Kindle app, the Kindle Bible, every single year, the most underlined passage is this one. But how many of us put this into practice? Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. And then you go, okay, well, but how do I pray? Guess what Philippians 4 tells you. Do this. Tell God what you need and thank him for what he's done. So I was hitting that moment of worry. My wife's word pierced my heart. And I, I go to Philippians 4. And so I just did that. I said, Lord, I need, and I wasn't, this wasn't a cat perspective need. Okay, Lord, this is what I need you to do. And then you're going to need to do this. This was, this was a, Lord, you're at the center. Lord, I just need you. I need a reminder that you are, you are my Adonai, Lord, like Joel talked about last week. I need, a, I need you, Lord. I need your presence. I don't even know what I need. I just need. And then, and then I prayed the thanks and remembered what God has done faithfully in the past and how his word has been true and all these amazing things, being in awe of him and wowed by him and the experiences where I've seen him be who he is. Lord, I, I need you and I thank you. And then you know how Philippians 4 ends? And then you will experience the peace that goes beyond understanding. And that's what happened. I went from the most anxiety I've had in a long time to the most peace I've had in a long time. And the only thing changed was the priority of my heart and remembering and trusting God to be who he is. He's God. And that's really, that's really the case with worry, with trust, is remembering God to be who he is. Ephesians chapter 3, and by the way, we're going to do a series on Ephesians later on this year. But Ephesians chapter 3 says that when we approach God in prayer, he is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. The word for immeasurably more is the word hooper ek parisu. Now here's the interesting thing about this word. The, the root of that word parisu, that itself means a number without end or infinity. So if all it said was parisu, God is able to do parisu more than we could ask or imagine, it would be translated into English as, infinite, as infinitely more. But it's not just parisu. 
It's ek parisu. Ek is a magnifier. So it's infinity magnified. And then the word, and then the, the, the preamble there, uh, hooper, which is where we get hyper in English. So infinity amplified, hyper amplified, or for those, fam- those fans of um, Toy Story, infinity and beyond. beyond. Wow, now that one we all knew. <laughs> all right. Infinity and beyond. Right, so God is capable of infinitely more, infinity and beyond what we could ask or imagine when we pray to him. This is who we pray to. Uh, So we could throw this image up here. Have you ever heard of the animal, the mantis shrimp? This thing is amazing. It's such a fantastic part of God's creation. It has a snap so powerful. This is why you never see it in an aquarium. It has a snap so powerful, it will break the glass on on aquariums. This is how it stuns its prey. It also, and this is the part I want to talk about here, the mantis shrimp, hey, look at those eyes. The mantis shrimp has 16 color receptors on its eyes. Now, maybe you're like, okay, and, but listen, the human eye has three color receptors. Once in a while, you get a human with four. Three, 16 is a lot. So that means when you look at the rainbow, you see Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, etc. right? Um, a mantis shrimp sees layers of color that literally we do not see with our eyes because we do not have the capacity to do that. Just try and imagine a new color. Right? It, it's impossible. Doesn't it hurt your head a little bit? A different color outside of what I, all I can see is what I can see. Right. And the mantis shrimp can see so much more. God made the mantis shrimp. God made the color spectrum, which is so much more than even what a mantis shrimp can see. God is so much more than we can even imagine, capable of infinitely more than we could ask or imagine. So when we seek him, when we trust him with everything, he's the one that was, is, will be. He's the one we can trust with everything. And do you trust him? Uh, Tim Keller, I just love this quote. He says, we can be sure our prayers are answered precisely in the way we would want them to be answered if we knew everything God knows. And I just say that again? Because this is a very dog perspective thing to say, not a cat. Would you agree? We can be sure our prayers are answered precisely in the way we would want them to be answered if we knew everything God knows. Do you trust God to be God? Trust him with everything. First love. So first, love is to adore him. Second, to trust him. Third, to love God is to obey God. And this is the part, just the word obey, our culture is, kind of finds abrasive. And that word is, is um, really falling out of favor in a lot of places. And even I've done weddings where they're like, you know, could we just leave out the obedience word? It's like, well, you know, affectionate obedience is kind of an important part of a healthy marriage relationship, Right? But listen, I'll just tell you from the scriptures. Romans 6 says, But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now this is an interesting passage. Another word study here, the word slaves there is, in, is bond servant. A bond servant is a slave who has been set free and then willingly chooses to dedicate their life in service to a master. So if somebody saw a master with multiple bond servants, they say, man, that must be an incredible master. And in that passage, you're set free from the power of sin and now become slaves, bondservants of God. And I wonder if the reason we don't feel a stir up and affectionate obedience to God for some of us is because we don't realize the depth to which we have been freed. We don't realize 
the power of sin had our life. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That, that, that's, wow, that's kind of, I mean, that's a pretty, pretty major thing. It doesn't just say the wages of really bad sin is death. It says the wages of sin. And who in here can say that I have no sin even in the last hour? And the wages of sin is death. So to see the weight of we, that we've been set free, um, I've heard it said that those who have been through near-death experiences and, and survived them actually find for a, a number of years, they, they kind of come back and talk to them, that they are happier in life than they were before the near-death experience. And I think one of the reasons is because they're, it's like every day feels like a gift that, wow, this could have been, but now look where we are. Wow, thank you. And I don't think most of us realize every day is a gift from God Almighty. You have been set free from the power of sin to be a bondservant of God. Now, if you love me, Jesus says this in John 14, 15, if you love me, you obey my commands, affectionate obedience. Loving God means, 1 John 5, 3, loving God means keeping his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. This is not obligation. This is joyful obedience. The longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, written by David, is 100% him just singing about how much he loves to obey and do God's commandments. I mean, we rarely sing songs like that in church these days, right? But here's David, the longest. I mean, just imagine your kid, like you give them some chores and they're walking around the house like, I love my chores because I love my mom and dad, right? That you probably aren't seeing that in your house. But this is what it's saying. God, I love you so much. You're just so joyful to serve you. And then Matthew 11. Then Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. So in the context of that rest is obedience. The yoke is the work. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. So to love God is to adore him, to trust him, and to obey him. Now I can show you that, tell you about it, but the only way we really know it is to experience it. So, so let me close with this illustration. Uh, and this is a derivative of an illustration from a great preacher by the name of Francis Chan. So imagine that uh, there is a child in your house that you uh, would like to do a chore. So imagine your dishwasher is full and clean and there's dishes all over the sink that need to be washed. I know for some of you that's harder to imagine than others, all right? So picture that. Now picture there's a, ch a young child in your house and you say, hey, uh, I would like you to empty that dishwasher and clean those dishes. Now imagine for a second that that child's response to you is, yes, I would love to do that. And then you're like, okay, this is great. And you come back three, four hours later and there's, there's even more dishes and the dishwasher has not been emptied. And you find the child and you're like, hey, hey, what's going on? I thought you said you would love to do this. And they're like, I would. Listen, I have been studying dishwashers, the science of emptying them and washing dishes for the last three to four hours. I have learned so much. You need to, look, this is amazing. Did you know that there are 25 different kinds of, of dishwashers out there? Did you know that there are different methodologies? You could get more in there than I ever realized you could get in there. But all the time, they don't empty the dishwasher. And then they go, you know, I'm having a study group tonight. 
I'm bringing all my friends over and we're gonna read the pamphlet all about the dishwasher and this whole science. Wouldn't you be like, just empty the dishwasher. But how many of us, when it comes to our walk with the Lord, we're like, Lord, I love your word. I go to studies about it. I, 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 I learn all these things about you. I love learning about you. But then the Lord's like, but do you ever do anything that my word tells you to do? Do you, if you love me, you will obey me. You'll take on my yoke, you'll follow. Like the world may not like the things that you're called to do, but you do it because you have affection and obedience to me, Lord, as you wish, as you wish, I'll follow you. Now, let me draw it as, as we head home here today. Uh, a couple of my kids were at the early service and it was actually rather funny after this illustration to talk to them because the conversation went to what are we doing today? And both of my kids went, well, I'm going to shovel the driveway and uh, I'm going to do the, the dishwasher. And I was like, oh, affectionate obedience. <laughs> and it just made me think as you think about your walk, those in your life you love and your love of God, what is he calling you to affectionately do out of affectional obedience? How is he calling you to follow him, to love him, to know him? And I do pray that each and every one of us would have a real experience with the living God. Amen? Amen. 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 Jesus, would you stir up our love and our affection for you? Would you show us, Lord, where we have loved something else more than our love is for you? Would you reprioritize the love in our hearts and stir us up to affectionate obedience of you? Jesus, I pray this in your name and for your glory alone. Amen.